Welcome to American Narratives. I'm Marianne Pina. And I'm Joe Frodsham. And today we have an outstanding guest with us today, Danny Vargas. Danny is an American businessman, media personality, a U.S. Air Force veteran, and political activist. He is founder and president of Varcom Solutions, a D.C. area-based marketing and public relations firm. He has made a mark not only in business, but in the community as well. Danny, thank you so much for your service and for being here with us today. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. It's terrific having you, Danny. It really is. Um, I find your background, your experiences compelling. I wish we had three hours for this episode, but unfortunately, you're a busy man and we don't. Um, but we let's let's start with the beginning. I, I mean, uh, you as a person, um, tell us, where, where are you from? Where is your family from? Where did you spend your formative years? So I actually, I grew up in New York City, uh, even though I live, I've been living in the D.C. area for the last almost 30 years now, but I grew up in, in an area called Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, but, you know, the, the, I tell people that my story is really my mom's story. Uh, so my family's from Puerto Rico. Uh, my mother grew up in a town called Arecibo in northwestern Puerto Rico. Uh, she grew up as a servant girl. Her family was so poor that they gave her away to a slightly better off family where she worked as a servant girl when she was little. So she was never allowed to go to school. She never finished the first month of the first grade, never learned to read or write, uh, ended up um, getting married and moving to New York city, uh, got divorced and got remarried. And so I'm the youngest of four kids. Um, so I have three older sisters uh, and the only boy. Uh, so uh, going up in New York was uh, challenging. But my parents divorced when I was two years old, uh, so we ended up on, on the welfare system. Uh, she had no skills to fall back on, no other visible means of support, so uh, we ended up uh, on welfare and probably one of the worst neighborhoods in the city, if not the country at the time. Bushwick was, was really, really bad. It was um, uh, crime infested. There was drugs everywhere. There was violence and gangs and so forth. So it was a really rough neighborhood. Um, there was a period of time where my eldest sister had moved out of the house. My middle sister was in a group home and the one close to me in age was already hanging on the street. So, and then my mom was out trying to find ways to be able to make some additional money. So there were times where I was alone, um, in this little rat infested ramshackle little apartment with, with no food and no, um, you know, sort of nobody to, to lean, lean on. So, times where I would take ice cubes out of the freezer and melt them down, put salt on them, and it, it, it felt like I was eating something. Uh, so it was, it was not the easiest of, of childhoods. Yeah, that's, uh, to say the least, just the characterization is uh, very difficult, very challenging. Um, so were you there through most of your childhood? Um, tell us a little bit more about kind of how you grew up, uh, how you got, sure. I mean, I, I look at what you just described and where you are now, and they're worlds apart. Right. Yeah. So, so, so what were some key instances as, as you grew up, education, et cetera? So I do remember there were some instances where, you know, uh, again, my, my mom didn't have any real skills to fall back on. So um, there were times where we would be late on the rent and we'd end up getting evicted. And I would come home and find our stuff on the on the sidewalk because the marshals had shown up and, and thrown us out. So there were times where we were homeless. There were times where we were hungry. Uh, times where we didn't know where the next meal was coming from when the next bed we'd be sleeping in. So we'd have to, you know, rely on friends and family members to, to find a place to stay. Um, I do remember uh, there was a period of time early in high school. I was always a really good student uh, in terms of academics, 
not so much in terms of attendance. Uh, so I was a valedictorian of my junior high school graduation. But then when I got to high school, the first couple of years, I would start hanging out on the streets and so forth. So my eldest sister came back into my life and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and started shaking real hard in my junior year. Uh, so I was actually able to, to finish my high school diploma with what in New York state, uh, they have a regents, uh, program. Uh, so I was able to finish with a regents diploma, uh, just because I was academically smart. Uh, but it was clear that I couldn't continue at New York city environment. I was hanging out with the wrong crowd and, uh, I ended up joining the Air Force at 17. Uh, so I enlisted. I was able to get my mom to put an X on a piece of paper to authorize me to leave underage. Uh, and at, at 17, I left to join the Air Force. And that's how the, the rest of the next chapter of the story goes is when I joined the Air Force. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Danny. You know, as we take a look at, uh, you know, our history, everyone's right. We all have people that influence our lives. Who would you say if there was an individual besides your sister? Because it sounds like she came back and kind of shook you a bit. Um, who else might have been an influence in your life? You know, so I would point to a couple of people. I, I do talk about my mom a lot because she was a great influence on my life. I, um, you know, she was the strongest woman I've ever known. Um, she was the person that taught me that when they tell you to sit down and shut up, that's when you need to stand your tallest and be your strongest. Uh, she was so strong. I remember she would actually get into physical fistfights with police officers in, in New York. Uh, and then my, my eldest sister, who was a great influence on my life. I mean, she was the one that helped uh, get me back on the right path. And she was a great success story in her own right. Uh, to this day, she's just what a wonderful role model she was for not only our family, but also uh, lots of folks in, in the community. Uh, she's the commissioner of parks for the Bronx and she's just been such a wonderful uh, human being. Uh, she's now the matriarch of our family, but um, I think there are also lots of teachers throughout the process, you know, growing up in, in that type of neighborhood in New York uh, to have teachers that would be willing to serve in that community in those schools as such a difficult era was really uh, challenging and difficult to come by, but they were dedicated, they were devoted. So there were some teachers that I really looked to as um, inspirations and role models that they were able to go into one of these rough neighborhoods and for the love of teaching and for the love of the, the children, they were able to, to do that. And that, that's across the country. I mean, you've got neighborhoods like that in New York and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles, et cetera. So it really does take a special type of human being to be a teacher to teach these young people in those difficult circumstances. So I, I applaud them. Yeah, you know, it's, it's what we know is we didn't get here by ourselves, right? And sometimes those teachers, I, I'm sitting next to one here. Um, my my wife and partner here, Marianne, used to teach in Title I schools. And and you really, it does reinforce the difference you can make if if you really engage with kids from those high-risk environments. Yeah, no, as a previous you know, educator. I always, say, oh, no, I always well, say that there are diamonds in the rough. I mean, in these communities that a lot of people just, you know, blow off and entire swaths of populations, you know, but the reality is that there are some some real diamonds in, in, in the rough. They're real uh, gems of human beings and, and students. They just need a little. I think that's where these teachers like Marianne, like yourself, going in and being able to, to help encourage them and, and support them. I think that makes all the difference in the world. It, it really does. Um, as a previous, I was going to say, I was a previous educator. I know the value and the impact that a teacher can have in, in their students. So it's always nice to, you know, 
15 years later, get a get that email or that message on Facebook saying, hey, I'm graduating college and I feel so old now. <laughs> so um, it, they definitely make a difference. So, Danny, you know, you, you mentioned about going into the Air Force. Um, what what put that thought in your head and why and how did that go for you? So when I was a kid, there was a um, there was a, a, a nonprofit, uh, a cadet organization that was formed in my neighborhood to help keep kids off the street, frankly, uh, the, the hooligans that we were. Uh, so it was a Navy cadet type, uh, oriented organization, the coastal patrol cadet corps in, in Ridgewood and Bushwick. Uh, and I formed, I was part of that for a while, had a great time. Um, and then when it came time for me to, to figure out how to get out of New York, uh, the military, uh, was an option. I had already, gotten accustomed to wearing a uniform and being part of uh, military drill type things. I, I felt a sense of patriotism as a result of that as well. Uh, Cause I knew even in those circumstances that um, in spite of the difficulty that I grew up in, I knew I was incredibly fortunate to have been born in the one country where, you know, the outcome may not be guaranteed, but the opportunity is. Um, so I figured, you know, to kill two birds with one stone, uh, number one, being able to serve my country and give back. And number two, being able to get out of that, that challenging environment and find a different path for myself. So well, I went to the recruiter's office and I said, show me your list of jobs. Uh, when I was 17, I mean, I looked at a list of jobs and I found one and I said, that's what I want to do. And the recruiter looked at me and he says, yeah, I don't know if you want to do that. You, uh, you're gonna have to take a battery of tests and you may have to wait a while to go. And I said, no, that's the job that I want you to do. It was a cryptologic linguist and was in, in the intelligence community. I thought that was fascinating, right? Because I used to love all the, the movies and the intrigue from back in those days. And uh, I did well on the battery of tests and I was able to get in. And I got to basic training in San Antonio, Texas. And they said, great, congratulations. You're going to be a Russian linguist. And I said, wait, wait a second. I always speak Spanish. Test me, guys. <laughs> Russian. How, how random is that? That's interesting. Yeah. So I already spoke Spanish because, as I mentioned, my mom never learned to read or write, but she also never learned much English. She knew maybe 10 or 12 words in English. So you know how to say, hello, Howard, you get the heck out of my way. And that was pretty much the extent of her English. I used to go with her to uh, back in the old days in, in the welfare system. You had to go to face-to-face meetings. Uh, so there I was a six year old kid having to translate for my mom and we would have to go to these face to face meetings. Um, so Spanish was my first language, uh, because of my mom and then, uh, being able to, to speak English was also an added benefit. So, uh, in basic training, I, they gave me the test and I, sure enough, I spoke Spanish, but they still need a place to put me while I got my security clearance. And I ended up spending about five months in Monterey, California at the defense language Institute learning intermediate Spanish. Uh, which was a fantastic experience. And then went on to um, the technical training in San Angelo, Texas, and then to survival school in Spokane, Washington, because I chose to, to go airborne. Um, and then ended up uh, going to Panama uh, during the times of the conflict in Central America, the Contras and Sandinistas and El Salvador and all that stuff that was going on. Had a fascinating time. It was a wonderful mission. Uh, went there initially for two years, stayed for almost five years. Uh, and then the, the mix-up with Noriega started coming up. So uh, it was an, an incredibly fascinating mission. Uh, I was able to sort of grow through the, the ranks of the responsibilities um, from intelligence collection to intelligence analysis and airborne mission supervisor and 
I was reporting to the Air Force when I was a 22-year-old, 23-year-old. And uh, so it was a fascinating time for a young person to be able to have increased responsibility. And then I ended up spending my last year in the Air Force in San Antonio, Texas, uh, so not too far from you guys, uh, and just enjoyed my time in the Air Force. But after seven years of active duty, I had already achieved what many people in my career field would take them 15, 20 years to achieve. So it was time to, to find new challenges and and explore new opportunities. That's where I moved over to the, um, the the civilian world. So I went to the telecommunications industry at that point. Telecom, yeah, that which was obviously big here in the Dallas area. Um, still some big players like AT&T and so on. You know, it's not only what you said, how you said it. You really lit up uh, talking about those five years. It, it sounds like the military, did you ever think of sticking with it? I mean, uh, and, and kind of being career military? You know, I did. I thought I thought about it, uh, but I figured, you know, let me let me see what's what else is out there. So what I left out was after I got out of the Air Force was I spent about five years working for what became part of Raytheon Corporation as a contractor doing yeah. similar work. Um, but I had gotten married also. So between Panama and San Antonio, I went to New York uh, on leave to visit my family, uh, met my wife. We fell in love and we ended up getting married. And um, when I got out and worked for Raytheon, I you know, was doing very risky, challenging, dangerous work uh, in the similar intelligence community uh, line of work. And it was not conducive to raising a family, right? Because I didn't know if I was coming home or not. Uh, so at, at that point is when I said, you know what, it's probably time to move on to something a little less uh, risky or dangerous. And uh, that's when I moved to telecommunications. I went from megahertz to megabits, basically. Is what I did. <laughs> that's good. I'm going to steal uh, that one. I like that. But also, always sort of in the international field, right? So um, I went to work for Sprint International, and I uh, uh, got involved in sales and marketing in Latin America. Uh, other than, you know, intelligence work, this was very commercial work. Uh, went on to be the uh, VP of sales and marketing for France Telecom for the Western Hemisphere. So I ran sales and marketing for France Telecom from Canada down to Chile, uh, which is fascinating work, including launching operations in the United States and took them from zero revenue to a hundred million dollar annual run rate within eight months. And that was just a, a fascinating experience. Um, so you and ran a PNL, you ran a PNL, a profit and loss in that role. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you had some big roles. So it was a fascinating time. It ended up, uh, you know, I loved my, um, uh, what I was doing in, in Latin America, what I was doing in Europe. Uh, the challenge was at that point, I had already, my oldest son had already been born and I had sales teams throughout the United States and, and, and the hemisphere. And I was on the road all the time. I was traveling 60, 70% of the time. And I, I wasn't seeing my son grow up. Uh, so in 2004, I launched my own company as a way to be able to have more control over my time. Um, so it's, we're going on 17 years. It was June of 2004 that I launched the company. Um, and it'll be a, our 17th anniversary here coming up. We're going through a rebranding exercise right now as you speak. But when I started the company, I went from, you know, working for this big, huge multinational corporation, France Telecom, multi-billion dollar company, to being a one-man startup. And, yeah. and that was fascinating. Just a, a huge culture shock. Yeah, you know, we'll have to exchange stories. We're both actually the youngest of four, and we started a company after being part of big company. So offline, we'll have to exchange notes because there's a lot of interesting parallels here. Um, 
Yeah. So, Danny, obviously you had great, wonderful, fascinating experiences internationally from growing up in New York. Um, tell us a little bit more about some of the things that you've enjoyed doing the most within those jobs. Well, so I, I sort of built up a reputation for being a change agent, for being a disruptor, for breaking dishes when dishes needed to be broken, right? Uh, I've, I've never been really great or comfortable just being a, a caretaker in whatever role I took on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always about, hey, you know, we need to start this or we need to change that or we need to move in this other different direction. And that's where I would step in. So I, I not only embrace change, I would thrive in change. Uh, and I would get almost a little bit bored with just if I had to step into role and, and just be a caretaker for a while. Right. So um, that was what I sort of built a reputation on in those roles, as well as, you know, after I started my company, um, a lot of what I did, not only in the business community, but also in sort of the, the nonprofits and the community in, in general was stepping in and, and taking on the challenging role of making something happen. Uh, I think a lot of that comes from my, my childhood as well. Yeah. You know, um, people ask me, you know, I, I, I tell people statistically I ought to be dead or in jail right now, uh, the way I grew up. Yeah. Uh, and they asked me, you know, how was it that you were able to sort of what they call make it? Uh, and I say, just cause I didn't know any better. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to succeed. I didn't know that I was supposed to end up uh, a statistic. Uh, so I just kept moving forward, you know, yeah. and didn't let what society or, or people around me uh, would define as my limitations. Just, it was my ignorance that allowed me to succeed just cause I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to, to move forward and, in that direction. I, I think it, 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 I just agree. your story immediately yes. tells me how we limit ourselves with our own constructs, right? Uh, that we let our background or some other aspect of ourselves we can't help or change actually define us versus, uh, you know, you, you had the luxury of not being told or put that into those boxes or at least the fortitude and optimism to, to just break out of it and roll um, and not let that stop you. So that's a great, I mean, it's a great learning, obviously. Um, tell us about, you know, we've all made mistakes. If you talk to my uh, partner here, she'll tell you I make him every day. It's kind of what I do. I'm big <laughs> but, but in the context of the career, what's the big one? You know, what's the one mistake that immediately comes to mind might make you a little queasy. What was it? How'd you navigate through it? And what'd you learn? You know, that's, that's a really good question. It's hard to uh, put my finger on it because you're right. I think you, you make mistakes all the time. Yeah. And I think that frankly, um, I sort of embrace those mistakes or those missteps. You know, I, I always say that I, I never lose. I either win or I learn. Um, and I think those instances where whether it was a big deal that, um, you know, I, I lost in my telecom days or in, even in my business uh, or a customer that I wasn't able to keep for whatever reason because of service or uh, a, a revenue opportunity that uh, became bad debt. Any of those things that happened along the path were learning experiences. Uh, so I can, I can probably point to dozens of those instances. Uh, but the one thing that they all have in common is that they provide an opportunity to learn. Um, and then if, if you like, I wouldn't mind taking a moment just to describe where I've been from the time that I started my career 17 years ago to today, because that was an interesting journey as well. So yeah, let's hear about Varcom. Let's, yes. let's hear about so, the trajectory of Varcom. 
So when I, when I started my own company um, after leaving France Telecom, it was, I wanted to do something that I enjoyed, something that I, I thought would be a value to my customers and something that could provide a living for my family. At that point, it was just mainly, mainly about being able to have a lifestyle to, to provide for my children. Uh, started Varcom as a way, as Vargas Communications, right? Basically, not very creative on my part, but uh, doing marketing, public relations, and, and sales support and management consulting to small and medium enterprise and corporations. So, um, a couple of years after doing that, I got involved in the, the Chamber of Commerce community here where I live in Northern Virginia in Reston and Herndon and, and so forth. Uh, I got involved in nonprofits as well. Uh, at the time, AOL was headquartered in Loudoun County in Ashburn, uh, Virginia. Uh, they saw what I was doing in the community. They approached me, uh, made me an offer I couldn't refuse, uh, asked if I would join them as the VP of global sales for their value added services uh, voice division. Yep. Um, I asked if I could keep my company going on the side. This, of course. So I joined AOL as the, the head of global sales for their, for one of their divisions. And it was six months after that, that the company it, uh, changed its entire business model from selling services to giving everything away for free. So that <laughs> I remember added, that. Yes. Yeah. You remember that? Oh, that value you've got mail. Was, oh, I do. Yeah. yeah. It just, it yeah. just decimated. It just went yes. away. So I figured, well, I'll just go back to my company. They said, no, no, wait, 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 stick around. We want you to be the, the head of Latin America for us. Uh, so I said, okay. And I would lean back on my contacts in Latin America and, uh, their uh, AOL's initial foray into Latin America years prior was a dismal failure because they had gone into the market in places like Brazil saying there's a new sheriff in town. Well, culturally, that just doesn't, doesn't fly. So I was developing the, the, the plan for, uh, and the strategy for re-entering Latin America for AOL. At that time, a few months into that, the new head of AOL, uh, international for AOL was a guy based out of Bangalore, India, who decided that international for AOL would be to get India off the ground, figure out what to do in China and fix Western Europe. Uh, oh, Latin America. Well, maybe in a couple of years we can look at that and so forth. But so at that point it was just clear that that wasn't going to work. So I left AOL uh, grateful for the experience, but also grateful for the fact that I kept my company going as, yep. as well. Yep. Yep. Um, and then I got even more involved in the community. So I had been the the chairman of the chamber of commerce where I, I led the mainstream chamber, the first Hispanic to chair a mainstream chamber in the history of Virginia. I uh, got involved with a political organization. I became the national chairman of a 527 political organization at the time of the um, uh, John McCain, Barack Obama uh, presidential race, uh, which got me a lot of visibility in the media. I was in the media constantly uh, and involved traveling all over the country in um, uh, sort of these political uh, events and activities. Uh Shortly after that, uh, continued to be involved in nonprofits, uh, family service type nonprofits, because I care deeply about helping my neighbors, especially my struggling neighbors, achieve sustainable self-sufficiency. Um, got involved with workforce development in the Commonwealth of Virginia and eventually became the chairman of the, the Virginia Board of Workforce Development, again, with an eye to making sure that folks have the opportunity to gain uh, the training and the skills and certifications they need to get into better paying jobs. Um, was appointed by Congress to a, a commission that was focused on identifying the feasibility of creating a new Smithsonian American Latino Museum. Uh, on that commission were people like Eva Longoria and Emilio Estefan, et cetera. Um, and we went around the country getting input from citizens on 
their thoughts of creating this museum. And that was in, well, we met for the first time in September of 2009 and delivered a report to Congress and President Obama in May of 2011 saying three basic things, that there was a clear and present need for the museum. Number two, that it should be part of Smithsonian. Number three, it really ought to be on the National Mall. Uh, eventually, I became the chairman of a 501c3 Friends of uh, group for that museum uh, that had been struggling to try to get the enabling legislation passed in Congress for years and years. And when I became chairman of that group in December of 2016, I sort of repositioned the effort and refocused our, our messaging. And uh, we were able to get that bill passed in the House of Representatives uh, unanimously in July of 2020. Um, and then eventually uh, it passed in the Senate uh, and got signed into law uh, in December of last year. So the bill passed in, in Congress on December 21st, my birthday yep. of 2020, and six days later was signed into law uh, just a few days before the end of my term as chairman. So that was a great success. Well, what a great birthday present, huh? Yeah, congratulations. And present. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, that, that has to be a, one of those crescendo moments in your career, really. I mean, you just talked about a 10-year journey, really. And it really to get fascinating. To, yeah, and it, stick-to-itiveness, the vision of it, communicating through multiple administrations, getting the political, you know, key stakeholders aligned, uh, and that's true leadership. And it's very consistent with what you already said, is you're a game changer, right? You like change. You don't like homeostasis. You like a level of a level of challenge and to rise above it, which might have started when you were a kid, kind of getting out of high school, right? Uh, very, very cool. And so it also, you. you know, it also showcases the power of focus and intent, right? And so with, without that, it might have not happened in December of, of 2020, right? So... Thank you for your leadership in that. I've, I had been following it uh, for quite a while. Danny, you know, as, as, we, as we hear your progression of your career journey and then even into entrepreneurship, are, have there ever been any instances that maybe you've kind of scratched your head or had that aha moment like that, that really seems unfair to you that you may have had to overcome? Yeah, and how did you and, respond to that? Um, so I'll, I'll be completely blunt uh, and honest with you. I think... You know, those of us that are sort of in different minority communities um, probably experience it on a daily basis, e either uh, knowingly or unknowingly. Um, I, I can't change the way I look and I can't change the spelling of my last name. I could, but I probably don't want to. Uh, and I definitely can't change the, uh, the unspoken reaction uh, among others that I meet or interact with. Uh, as a result of that, I do know, for example, that there have been many instances in which there have been sort of biases that um, have been in place uh, on on others' parts because of my ethnicity. Um, I didn't used to uh, think that that was a real thing, but I, I've come to realize that that is a thing. Uh, I went to give a speech at a political organization, a statewide convention. And as I was being introduced and I went up to the stage, I found out later that someone had whispered behind my back saying, I wonder if he's illegal. Um, you know, things along, along those lines, you know, that, uh, and in, in the business community, I'm absolutely convinced that there are uh, folks, my peers and my colleagues in the business community that, have a, a, an expectation or a diminished view of myself and my company 
because of my ethnicity, because of or, or things along those lines. I refuse to let that define me, and I refuse to let that sort of limit what I strive to achieve. What I do tell young people, though, uh, is that are within minority communities. I say that um, those challenges and those biases exist and may exist for a while. Eventually, we'll, we'll overcome mo- most of that stuff as a country. But in the meantime, uh, it's just a reason for you to work harder and strive for higher and not let anybody dictate or define what you can and cannot do. Uh, if anything, see it as a as a challenge, as a motivation force uh, for you to uh, uh, strive more to achieve and prove them wrong. Yeah, I love it. That's very motivational. It's, it's grounded it in reality, but also in possibility. Right. So thank you for it's, sharing. It's the resilience and the positive mindset that I'm hearing from you, Danny. Yeah. You know, as, as, as we wrap up, what would be some key lessons and learnings that you would like to share with the audience today? Um, I, I, I appreciate that question, Marianne, because I think, I think that's uh, vital. I think there's a couple of things that I would like to number one, as I, I've mentioned repeatedly, I think, you know, not let, let anything or anyone or any societal convention or what someone else might say about you or to you, uh, limit, um, what you can strive for achieve. I think the only limitation that we should have on ourselves is the, the limit of our imagination, our, our willingness to work hard for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's number one. Number two, I do believe that, um, you know, we, we go through life, uh, engaging in a series of decision points, right? Uh, I, I've yet to meet anyone that when they were 18 had their entire life planned out and that's how, that's how it all played out, right? Uh, we go through a series of hallways that I described and then we come to decision points where there are a set of doors and you need to pick what door you're going to go through and then go through that door, which is another hallway and that leads to another set of doors, et cetera, right? These are all these decision points that we go through in our lives. Um, the challenge comes when we get to those uh, intersections and there are a set of doors and we're too afraid to pick a door because of the fear of the unknown. Um, and I think that's where we begin to stagnate. And I think, uh, so the second thing that I would say, tell people is when you get to that point, don't be afraid to take the leap of faith. You know, don't be afraid to pick a door and go through it. And if it turns out it's not the right door, you can always just turn around and come back and pick another door or go down another pathway. But don't let fear of the unknown keep you from moving forward uh, because that's, that's the, the biggest shame or, uh, you know, unfortunate situation where you've got someone who's got some incredible potential, but it's never realized because of the fear of trying something new. So that would be my second point. Don't be afraid to try. Well, you've st- certainly taken those leaps of faith, you know, AOL, back out of AOL, starting your own company after being an executive in a large company. Now you're going through a rebranding exercise. Uh, so life is full of these inflection points. And it sounds like what we can't do is let fear dictate. And if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice, but not a good one. Make a decision and go um, and don't let you fear know, drive it. 
I would tell you, and we were talking earlier about how I ran for office a few years ago in 2015. uh, A dear friend uh, was retiring from the Virginia House of Delegates, asked me to run to replace him. And I I never intended to run for office, but it was an incredible experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't win. It wasn't God's will. I'm thankful that I didn't win because the the political environment has become so toxic lately. But I do, I will tell you, I think uh, you, you, there's an old saying, you regret more the things that you didn't do than things that you did do. Right. So, you know, give it a shot. You know, if you're, if you're, if you want to do something, if you want to try something, give it a shot, you know, don't be afraid. Because uh, you'll you'll regret more not having done it. Right? Absolutely, right. we couldn't agree more. I think between Joe and I, we repeat that to ourselves all yeah, the time. Yeah, that's our mantra. Yeah. You regret more what you didn't do than what you did, and life is short. Let's move fast, and if, or at least move deliberately with choice. And it's extraordinarily important. So, well, yeah, there's a lot of parallels. Uh, the youngest of four, going from big company to entrepreneurism, um, now kind of going through a rebranding exercise, and. Finally, your mantra is our mantra. So I, I, we feel like we're, you know, brothers and sisters from another mother or something <laughs> going on here. Like I love it. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is terrific. This is exactly what we needed. I, I, I think um, you bring a very compelling, interesting, raw but real uh, and inspiring story of personal and career triumph. And it still continues, right? Um, with, with honestly, what you did last July is, is so meaningful. I mean, that's going to be there for generations. Um, Can I leave you with one thought? Yes, absolutely. So, so I appreciate your, what you just said, Joe, about uh, the, the museum thing. It was, it was a, an incredibly gratifying situation that at a time of so much division and polarization and tribalism in our country, we were able to yes. uh, come up with a, a positive unifying bipartisan coalition to, to make something happen uh, that will have a positive impact on the country, right. To illuminate the American story for the benefit of everyone. Yep. Um, but the one thing that I will uh, leave you with is, is a thought that, you know, there was a, a former Surgeon General who had a saying that I always found really compelling and resonating with me. He said, for those of us that have been fortunate enough to take the elevator up, we need to make sure we send it back down for someone else. Um, so to the extent that there are folks that are listening that have been fortunate enough to be able to come out of difficult circumstances and achieve whatever they define as success, please, please, please don't forget to find ways to give back, give back to the community, give back to young people, give back to folks that are, you know, trying to make it in, in similar circumstances. Um, we, we are, we are nothing if, if not a series of, um, iterations of what we can be as a, as a species. Uh, so if you want to leave a mark, look behind you and find ways to be able to help others fill in the, in the same uh, footsteps that you went through, or at least encourage them to create their own path. Uh, so please just find ways to give back and, and be good stewards of, of your community. Thank you. I couldn't have said it better. Um, I think you said it perfectly and right on target. And, I, yes, and honestly, I think the museum is a manifestation of that in so many ways. It's going to tell a story and inspire, enable and educate all of us. You know, American and otherwise. So thank you. Yep. And so for those of you listening, please do look up the National Museum of the American Latino. Um, thanks to Danny Vargas and all the other leaders that were part of this journey. Danny, it was a pleasure being with you today. Thank you so much. Thank for you so much, us. Danny. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, and God bless. God bless.
American Narratives is brought to you by CMP, a minority and women-owned firm providing solutions across the full talent life cycle, from recruitment and assessment to leadership coaching and career transition solutions. To learn more, visit www.careermp.com.